Good morning. Happy Father's Day to all of you that it is appropriate for everybody, really. I got a great announcement for you. If you're a father, if you're a grandfather, if you think one day you want to be a father, if you've ever met anyone that was a father, if you think yeah, you're going to go shopping and run into someone that might be a father, we've got something for you. And the price is free. Good, good price. This thing is, uh, we got it all. Rianne put this little thing together, and it's a Father's Day gift we've been accumulating for 14 years. <laughs> Off and on. But the little, uh, the little pin thing in here is kind of cool. I keep one right in the uh, console of my car, and I use it all the time because it's got a light, and it's got a level. I level a lot of stuff while I'm driving. You just, it, it's amazing. It's got, it's got a ruler with it, it's, it's, uh, and it's just the size of a pen. I do use it as my pen. So when you leave, Right out there in our ornate lobby, or Julie, right there where Jim is standing as you're leaving, if you haven't got eight or nine of these, then here's what you can do, really. Christmas shopping. You know what I'm saying? What man would not want this gift? But wait, there's more. So anyway, on your way out, you can do that. Also, we'll be sharing Lord's Supper communion together today, so if you haven't gotten your... Uh, high-class dollar elements that we have for you when you come in. and want to take you the rest of the service to open. So they're also right there. You can get them from, from uh, Jim right outside. If you haven't done that already, we're going to close out our time together today with uh, the Lord's Supper. So those of you that are watching at home or at sea or wherever you might be on the beach, uh, wherever you may be, we're going to have communion here in about 35, 40-ish minutes. So you can get your crackers and or your potato chips and whatever you got together since we get ready to share the Lord's Supper. One last thing I want to mention to you and then we're going to uh, begin to get into what I want to share today. We've got a uh, ladies Bible study. I know it's been mentioned. I want to mention it again. Starting July 13th. Ashley is here today. And so if you're ladies, if you're interested, it's going to be on Tuesday night starting July 13th. Uh, uh, Priscilla Shire, who is Tony Evans' daughter, and I absolutely love Tony Evans. Met him uh, 30 five years ago, and I've heard him speak many times and uh, uh, read all his stuff. Uh, Tony's kind of retired now, but he's a tremendous pastor, teacher. Uh, this is Priscilla's his daughter, and look, a lot of her stuff is very good. So ladies, it'd be something cool for you to do uh, during the week. Just come together and spend some time. And so Ashley's here if you want to ask her questions or sign up. Uh, you can also, there's information there in the bulletin. So I really encourage you. I think that's a great thing to do. So Turn to John chapter 1. I love being a father. You know, one of the things that's really cool about, as a Christian, as you begin to grow in your faith and you learn things and, and you study scripture, and I love the metaphors that the Bible uses to describe our relationship to God. We've talked about them many times, and, but it's important to understand that not only did God create, create us as human beings in his image, but through, through the person of Jesus Christ, we get to enter into a relationship with God where he is our father. And it's not an accident that God chose that metaphor to, to teach us about knowing him and relationships. And then I know as a young man, Mary, got, Mary and I got married so young. I was 19, I think she was 7, 8, something like that. So 
very, we were very young when we got married. And this year it would be 48 years that we've been married in, in August. And I was 19 and I knew absolutely nothing about two things. I knew absolutely nothing about being a husband. And I knew absolutely nothing about being a father. And thank God God gave me the, the woman that he did to teach me a lot of things. I knew nothing about really what it meant to live life as a believer. I'd been a Christian for about three years, but I never really understood uh, my home was not a Christian home. I didn't understand uh, living out your faith and being in a home. Uh, didn't have a good relationship with my dad. You've heard me talk about that. And, and so I, God began to introduce me to Christian men and, and watching her family and others and beginning to grow and you know, didn't understand anything about, like, uh, Mary had to teach me about what we do with our money. I just assumed it was my money. I'd do whatever I wanted to with it. And she quickly explained to me that it's not my money that belongs to God. And I said, well, he ain't here. I, I didn't say that. So same, things like that, I didn't know anything about being a father. And I, I still remember when our first child was born, uh, September 8th, 1975. I guess you should remember when your children were born anyway. September 8th, 1975. And I was a senior, I had started, that was the first day of my senior year in college at University of Memphis. And I'm 21 years old, but I'm cool. So we're sitting downtown, the old Baptist downtown, and, and then, back then you didn't go back there with your wife to have a baby. You sat in the father's waiting room, and then they came out and told you what you had. Old school. So I'm just sitting out there with, with uh, three other guys who didn't know what they were doing either, and we're watching Alabama and Missouri play football and playing cards. And I said, well, that, there's nothing to this. This is Because I loved Alabama and I loved football and I loved playing cards. So we're just sitting there playing hearts, spades, something, watching Alabama play Missouri. And then this lady slides the window and says, Randy Lockley. And I said, oh, that's me. So I, <laughs> I get up and go over there and she goes, do you have a little baby girl? And I went, oh, God. Suddenly I realized in that moment, you know, all I thought, was thinking about is just being cool. I played basketball, I played racquetball, I played tennis. I, I went to school, I studied, and I worked, and every now and then I spent time with Mary. when I could fit that in. And God said, it's time for you to grow up. That little thing that was just born back there in the delivery room is totally dependent on your dumb self for the next 18 years. you got to grow up. And... Thank God again. I had I'd never changed a diaper in my life. We had, we used cloth diapers when our first one, and then we we got saved and wised up to those disposable ones when they came along. But <laughs> we still I probably told you this before. We still got a picture somewhere. I'm I'm hoping it's been destroyed by now. But knowing Mary is, it has not. We've still got a picture of me trying to change my first diaper. Well, my hair, I had hair back then, and then uh, my hair's all down on my face. I got one of those pins sticking out of this side of my mouth, and I'm holding Martha, our daughter, up by her feet, trying to figure out, okay, where does this go? And Mary just said, you're changing that diaper. I'll see you later. And it took me a while, and I stuck her several times, but I, I, I got the diaper on her, and thinking back, it, what a privilege it is to be a father, and, and, and then... For those of you that know it and understand it, and those of you one day that will, uh, man, when you get to be a grandfather, that, that ain't nothing but gravy. You can quote me on that if you want. Ain't nothing but I love being a grandfather. It's just so special. Our oldest granddaughter works at Chick-fil-A, so we go to Chick-fil-A just every now and then just to see her because she's cool now. She's got a car and works, and 
She seems to be more interested in boys than me. I don't understand that. I'm her grandy. So we went last night. Normally she was working outside, and I guess she's gotten promoted or something because they had her inside the building doing something. So we didn't, we didn't get to see her. So we're going through the line. And finally I asked the guy, I said, is Ella Thorne working today? Like, of course everybody here knows who Ella Thorne is. That's, that's my granddaughter. And the guy says, I don't know. He said, I'll go find out. I said, no, no, it, it doesn't matter. It's all good. And so we pull up to the window to pay, and I look. Mary couldn't. Uh, I guess Mary was, were you driving? I don't even remember who was driving. Mary's driving. So I'm, you know, I'm scouting for, for Ella. And I look through the window, and I see her in there. I, I don't think she's cooking, but I think they got her preparing stuff to hand out to people to give out. And I said, well, she, I can't, apparently she's moved up. And now I can't even see her at Chick-fil-A. So I don't know. What I'm going to do, she's got a pool, so I'm just going to go over there and fall, fall in the pool and say, help. That might work. I saw, a, I saw a cool story this week, just reading stuff about being a father. And I was in the greeting card business for seven years, and on Mother's Day, you, just, you got run over by people buying cards. On Father's Day, it was like Death Valley. Uh, nobody, <laughs> nobody bought uh, Father's Day cards. I was reading a story this week about this uh, cool family, and they had two little boys. And the boys went to the mom and said, Mom, we, we desperately want, want a pet. We want a hamster. And, and some of you have probably been through that. And uh, when Mary and I got married, I wanted a dog. And I went through that and said, Mary, I really want a dog. And she said, we're not having a dog. So I had to make a decision 48 years ago. Do I, do I stay with Mary or do I get a dog? I prayed it through. And decided I'd stick with Mary. I guess, good decision. I love dogs. Anyway, so they, Mom, we want a hamster so bad, so bad. He said, we promise we'll take care of it. You won't have to do anything. Anybody ever had that conversation? You will not have to ever clean up behind. You don't have to worry about. I saw a teenager this week walking in our neighborhood carrying, a, you know, he had a bag. He was walking his dog and he had a bag. I know what was in that bag. I said, it was impressive. At least he cleaned up behind his dog. He did. So, anyway. So we want this hamster, Mom. We promise we'll take care of it. You don't have to worry about it at all. We'll clean up. We'll clean out the cage. We'll take care of everything. You don't have to. We promise. So they got him a hamster. They named the hamster Danny. So what, what happened? Who ended up taking care of Danny? Mom did. And Mom had too much to take care of with them. And Danny, so finally she comes to him with the inevitable conversation. Uh, Danny's got to go because... You, you can't take care of him. I'm having to clean up behind him. I'm having to feed him. I'm having to do everything. And so, so Danny's just going to have to go. And the kids said, well, maybe if he didn't eat so much and he wasn't so messy, we could keep him. She said, no, you go get the cage. And Danny, we're taking Danny. They said, Danny, we thought we were talking about Daddy. That's Father's Day, right? This is a true story, and then when we get into John, we'll do something important. This preacher, it's a true story, when on his first pastor, he got a little part-time job to help supplement his income. He got a job working in a feed store mixing feed. Well, if you've ever seen, I had to do that a little while when I, well, my grandparents had a farm, so I spent some time in areas, I did a lot of things like slopping hogs and, and chopping cotton. And uh, I don't know why my two brothers didn't have to, but I had to sit with the women and snap the peas and, and all that. Somehow I got that job. I said, well, at least I'm inside. So anyway, 
they, he gets a job mixing feed. When we, well, if you're around feed, like get very dusty and you get very dirty, and so he would come home. He's always covered in dust. And he had a little uh, three-year-old son, and he, he looked outside, and, and this was went on for a while. And he looked outside one day, and his son was out there playing in the dirt and just, just pouring dirt all over him. Just, of course, that's what three-year-old boys are going to do anyway, but he's just pouring dirt all over him. So he went there and said, son, what are you doing? And he said, Dad, I want to be like you. That's Father's Day. And for, for you guys, and I think about um, as, as dads, you will never know, and I was sharing this this week with, uh, I think about people that went to camp, uh, like John's family, they just spent a week up with Esna, Ethnos, we talked about that earlier, with their adopted daughter Emma and Chris Ellison, and then yesterday, all our people who come and serve at help, you never know how God's going to use things when you're just doing something for others. That it will, sometimes it, years later, you may find out. But for fathers, for Christian men, when you are a vital part of your children's lives, not just the provider, even though that's a big part of it and it's important, but personally involved in where they are spiritually and their discipling and watching them grow, having them ask you those hard. I'm glad I wasn't at camp when that little girl asked that question about the stars didn't sin. Mike can handle that one or John or, or Mike or somebody else, but be there for them. Be there when they have the hard questions. Be there when they're challenged at school about their faith or what it means. Why do you go to church and who is God? That you get to mold and shape and be part of those minds, you and your wife. Because the time will come when you ain't cool in their eyes anymore. But they'll never forget that you were there for them, shaping them. Turn to John chapter 1 and let's look at Jesus again as the word. I promise we're going to finish this handout today. You know why? We only got one point. We've, we've been looking at Jesus in John's prologue in our series here on who is Jesus. He is the great I am. I am fill in the blank. We're going to be looking at those as we go through the Gospel of John at looking at Jesus' I am statements. And so as we're looking at the prologue to set all that up, We've looked at Jesus is the Word eternally. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, words with God, the Word was God. We've looked at that. And we've looked at Jesus being the Word effectively, that he came and as many as received him, he gave them the right, the privilege, authority to become children of God. We can be born again. We can know God because Jesus is the expression of God. He is the eternal Word. He is the effective Word. He came and because of what he did as God the man, we can be redeemed, we can know God eternally, and we can have peace and hope and joy in this life. We have something to share with people that will change them forever. So what I want to look at today is number three on your handout. I want us to look at the fact that Jesus is the word visibly. He's the word eternally, he's the word effectively, and he's the word visibly. When you study the life of Jesus Christ, what you see is God at work. And Jesus of Nazareth, who is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, manifesting what it would be like to see God. What a privilege those people had, especially people like Peter, James, and John, that inner circle of Christ, who got to be with him and see him in agony, see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, see him the way he prayed, 
the genesis of the whole chapter, the whole passage on what we call the Lord's Prayer, was they watched Jesus pray. I want to spend time alone with the Father. Over daily spending time alone with the Father and how it was important to Jesus and that they wanted that for themselves. And they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus goes into our Father, which are in heaven, hallowed be your name. And all those great principles of the model prayer. So what you see when it's that, when I'm talking about in verse 14, John 1, 14, famous verse, that you see God visibly when you see Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. God is a spirit, but I'm manifesting God to you. So look at John 1, 14. You all know the verse. We've all memorized it, studied it a lot. The word became flesh. The eternal, self-existent, second person of the Trinity, all the things we've looked at. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, human beings, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the first thing I want you to notice is that he's God in the flesh. We've talked about this. This is the message of Scripture. God came in the flesh to redeem human flesh. He could do that because he lived a sinless life, his death, burial, resurrection. The word became flesh. Eternal God, self-existent, no beginning, no end. We talked about the tense of the verb. Uh, in the beginning was the word. Before there was time, there was the word. He's always existed. The only self-existent thing in the universe is God. He created everything else. The word, that self-existent, eternal God became flesh. Greek tense. At a definite moment in time, he stepped out of eternity, always has been, and came as a human being. He's always been God. The Son was given. Always been. He became flesh. The tense of that. Fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 7, 14. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give a birth to a son. They will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is the God-man. The infinite, at that moment in time, in Bethlehem, the infinite became finite, came and lived 33 years as a human being on planet Earth. The invisible, no one had ever seen God, became visible. You could see God. He manifested him to us. The transcendent became tangible. If you went up and you touched the hem of Jesus' garment, touched his arm, remember after, even after the resurrection, he said, look, he showed him the scars. He sweat. He ate. He was human in every way you can be human, 100% human, 100% God simultaneously without sin. He was tempted in every way that we are, the Bible says, without sin. So therefore, can, I, can you or I ever say, nobody understands me? Have you ever felt that way? But no matter what it is, who understands me? There may not be anybody else that understands me because they're not like me. But Jesus does. He empathizes with me. He was, he's tempted in every way that I am, yet without sin. It's the union of the two natures, the divine and the human. Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, these words. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. 
God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by the angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Jesus came. He lived sinless, perfect life, manifested God, died for our sins, was buried, rose again, and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for us. And he is the omnipotent one with all authority. He has the keys of death and the abode of the dead, hell, Hades. He is the ultimate and final judge. He's God. It was necessary for Jesus to come in the flesh to be our faithful high priest. As a man, he went through torture and, and died and understood pain. He, could, he died physically for us so he could empathize. He's also our example. And because he was sinless, his sacrifice is sufficient to redeem us. Now, look at, back to verse 14 in John 1 again. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is a great phrase. Dwelt among us. He was, Jesus was the unique man, Emmanuel. Uh, when he spoke, it was different. He even spoke miracles. He was the word, the logos. We've talked about this. The idea of dwelt, dwelling among us. The word dwelt or dwell is the word in Greek that the verb is also tabernacled with us. And there's a specific reason that God uses that verb, I think. If you go back in the Old Testament... Because it literally means to pitch your tent. If you pitch a tent, if you go camping and you pitch a tent. I used to do that. I'm not crazy enough to do that anymore. If I go camping now, I'm, I'm sleeping in somebody's RV. That's all I know. If you pitch a tent, how long do you plan to live in that tent? Temporarily. It may be a few days. In my case, it might be a few hours. But if you pitch a tent, it's a temporary dwelling place. Don't miss this picture. In the Old Testament, after God delivers the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt, Passover is instituted. God has set them free, saved them from bondage, given them an eternal reminder through the Passover festival and those feasts of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Passover lamb that is to come. And they're on the way to the promised land And then God says to them, I want you to build for me a tabernacle. It's a great study. A massive tent that they carried around for about 400 years. It was a portable worship center where, if you go back, and like if you have a King James Bible, I know very, very few of those are around anymore, but if you have a King James Bible, you can go back and look it up. And in some versions, it's still referred to this way. It's called the Tent of Meeting. Even today, people still have tent meetings. But that's not what it meant. God tabernacled. He said, I want you to build this portable worship service, and it had two major compartments. The holy place had the courtyard, and it had the holy place and the holy of holies where the presence of God dwelt. And on the day of atonement, the high priest, would, nobody else was ever allowed in there. The high priest would go into the holy of holies on the day of atonement, make atonement for the sins of the people by sprinkling blood on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant called the mercy seat. 
Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, Christ is our mercy seat. Everything in the tabernacle was a shadow, a foreshadowing, a picture of the one to come. Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ or the Messiah. So God says, build me this tabernacle, this tent of meeting. It's where God met them at the tent of meeting. The Jews used it specifically for that purpose. And they carried it around. It was a portable worship center. It was not attractive. The Bible says Jesus was humble. It wasn't something you necessarily were attracted to to look at. Humble, attractive, unattractive. Place of worship. Place to meet God. The tabernacle was the forerunner of the temple. And then Solomon is chosen by God to build the temple at Jerusalem. David wanted to do it and God would not let him. He said, your son Solomon is going to build it. Now listen to Solomon's prayer when they dedicate the temple. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and he spread out his hands toward heaven and he said, Lord God of Israel, There's no God in heaven above or on earth below like you. You keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Please don't miss this message because this is consistent. This is the thread that runs through scripture. God fulfilling his covenant promises. Here's what he did. He'd given the Abrahamic covenant, which is unconditional. He said, I'm going to redeem through a seed that is to come through your people. We know that to be the Messiah. Jesus is the seed that came, the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 and the promise to Abraham. But then he gives them the law. He says, build this tabernacle where I will meet you. And he says, now build this temple where I will meet you. Same thing, holy place, holy of holies, day of atonement. That's where the sacrifices are made. God met them at the the temple. He tabernacled at the tabernacle, at the temple, and then Jesus came. And God met people where Jesus was. Read the Gospels closely. You don't see Jesus hanging out at the temple. When he goes into the temple, what does he do? He's angry at what's going on in there, and he throws them out. Throws the table over, the money changed. They're, they're just, they've turned it into a way to rip off the people. So God met them at the tabernacle. God met them at the temple. God met them in Jesus. So beautiful. And then Jesus said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. God, the third person, the last night he was on earth, for the crucifixion, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He's going to be with you like I've been. He's also going to be where? In you. And God will tabernacle in you. That's what scripture teaches us. So see the picture? Tabernacle. Temple. Jesus. And then Jesus ascended and he told his followers, now you go into all the world and you make learner followers of me, disciples, and I will be with you. As your power goes, 
I'll be with you for a while. I will be with you always. Thank you. That must have been an amen, I hope. I'll be with you always. I want you to pause for a moment and reflect on that. The Bible makes it very clear. Tabernacle, temple, Jesus, and where is the temple of God right now? You look around you. It's in the church. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now we fast forward to the eternal state. When we're all, when the roll is called up yonder, we all gather together, when believers are. The Bible says again that we're going, Jesus is going to, the Lamb is going to tabernacle with us again. And everything will be illuminated by his presence because he is the light of the world. No artificial illumination, just his presence, which right now is in us. He tabernacled with us. Back to verse 14. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The word in, in Greek, we get our English word, beautiful picture. We get our English word, theater. We beheld his glory, theater. What kind of glory is it? We, the disciples specifically he's talking about here, but obviously we get to see the glory of God as Jesus works in our lives. The disciples beheld, verse 14, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter, James, and John in particular were privileged to see Jesus at the transfiguration. The Bible says after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. And Peter answered and said, the picture, it's like bright sunlight. They were there with Jesus. That's all unapproachable, incredible light. And then Moses and Elijah show up. Peter's response, uh, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Peter was a smart man. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was speaking, Peter was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. That cloud represents the presence of God in the Old Testament. Suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Hear him. And later, Peter would write these words in his second epistle. We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's referring to the transfiguration. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Peter, James, and John got to get, see a glimpse of the glory of God. We beheld it so a little later he says, so when I write to you, I'm not making up stuff. I saw it. We were eyewitnesses of it. This incredible glory. The glory of God. And look at the little phrase there. Full of grace and truth. This is who he is, his moral glory, for lack of a better term. He voluntarily chose to come and be a bondservant and die for us. Philippians talks about it. He lived a poor life. 
Bethlehem, the whole picture, and then growing up as a carpenter's child. He chose to die a humble, torturous death as a criminal. But he came and dwelt with us. We saw the glory of God in the tabernacle. The cloud would lead him, the presence of God. When Jesus was born, we all know the passage. The Bible says this. There were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Always incredible light. At the ascension, the Bible says, when he had spoken these things, Jesus, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight cloud, the presence of God. Jesus ascended, but what did he send? The Holy Spirit. He said, you wait at Jerusalem. You will be empowered on high, Acts 1. Set the Holy Spirit, and you know the story. Jesus revealed the glory of God in his person, in his works, and in his words. For just a second, flip over to chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 11. The way John writes his gospel, he takes seven miracles of Jesus and he builds around them in increasing intensity, manifesting the glory of God to ultimately raising Lazarus from the dead. But notice the first recorded one for us in chapter 2, verse 11. This beginning of signs or miracles Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, where he changed the water to wine, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. In other words, we talked about it before. They said, his mom says, we're out of wine. And goes over to a, a cask of water and turns it into wine. Changes the molecular structure. By so doing, he's saying, I have the power over the elements. And then you'll see increasing intensity, the miracles going through. We're going to talk about some of those with the I am statements. Now back to chapter 1, verse 14 again. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In Isaiah, the Bible, God says, I am the Lord, my glory I will not give to another. Chapter 12, verse 41, you don't have to turn there, but chapter 12, verse 41 of this gospel says, Isaiah saw that, the glory, Jesus is God. In Revelation chapter 1, John, one of Jesus' closest friends, Peter, probably his closest friend, he's the one, he said, here, take care of my mom at the cross. John, in Revelation 1, in encountering the glorified Jesus, says this, when I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as dead. He said to me, don't be afraid, I'm the first and and the last. I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, we're seeing... Quickly now, God's glory, God's grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Grace is God simply giving to us what we don't deserve. His unmerited favor, the generosity of his love. John three sixteen, most famous verse in the Bible. God so loved that he gave. He gave Jesus so we could have eternal life. Full of grace full of grace and truth, the manifestation of reality. 
strip away all the shams and the masks and the phonies and the facades. When Jesus spoke, he spoke truth. One of the phrases you'll see throughout the Gospels, particularly in John, you'll see it. Constantly you hear Jesus say, truly, truly, I say to you. Most assuredly, I say to you. Verily, verily, I say to you. Whatever translation you use. Basically, he's saying, he, I who have absolute authority speak to you absolute truth. And when I speak to you, you need to pay attention. I'm not just flapping my gums. I'm God. I got something important to say. Pay attention. He was the ultimate revelation of what life is all about. He is life. We saw that last week. He's the source of life, grace. He's the source of light, truth. You know Jesus, you know God. You know Jesus, you can have life. You know Jesus, you know truth. Now verse 15, and we're done. John bore witness, John the Baptist bore witness of Jesus and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he comes after me, is preferred before me, for he was before me. John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. We talked about this last week. He's talking about Jesus' eternality. He is God. Of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. He has manifested God to us. Life, peace, joy. Get it from Jesus Christ. Grace for grace. God heaps his favor on us constantly. In Hebrews, the Bible says this. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. Moses did what God wanted. Jesus did what the Father wanted him to do. But hang on. For this one, Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone. He who built all things is God. Moses was, a, was faithful in all his house, the house of God, as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterwards. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are. Staggering who he is. Not just who he was, but who he is. I want to read you a quote, and then we're going to go into the Lord's Supper together. Jesus is the Word, the only begotten, totally different. I want to read you this quote. I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is not a mere man. Everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me. His will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. He is truly a being by himself. One can absolutely find nowhere in him alone the imitation or the example of his life. I search in vain in history to find a similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the gospel. Neither history nor, nor humanity nor the ages nor nature offer me anything with which I am able to compare it or to explain it. Here, everything is extraordinary. 
Those words were spoken by Napoleon Bonaparte. If you study history, great man after great man, great women, challenged by, faced the person of Jesus Christ and came away saying, he's exactly who he said he was. He is the great I am. Who alone can save? Who alone can redeem? I give him my life. And I'm the better for it. As we get ready to enter our time of, of the Lord's Supper, I'm going to pray in just a moment. You have your elements there, and as the worship team leads us, I want you to take this time, just be alone with your Savior, thanking for who he is, for what he's done, for the world, and for you. Spend that time, and then at the end of that time, we will take the elements together. Would you bow your heads? Well, Father, as we pause before you now, we thank you that on this Father's Day, we get to call you Father through, through the Word, Jesus Christ. Because he became flesh and dwelt among us, we visibly saw, history saw, God. And then he went and did what only God, the God of man can do. He died for our sins. He conquered sin and death. So as we lead up to a time where we're going to share the Lord's Supper together, we want to think about his body broken for us. His blood spilled for us that we might be forgiven. That we'd be challenged individually and corporately as believers to share his death till he comes. We thank you for the privilege of telling the world about Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.